Do you ever look at your life and wonder, what on earth is God doing with me right now? Maybe you've looked about church before and you've seen um, some brother or sister and you can really see God working in their life. You can see them bearing fruit. And then the question comes back to yourself, well, what, what's God doing in my life? And I wonder if that's been intensified uh, slightly by lockdown, uh, the fact that you've been at home more regularly and so seemingly unable to see what it is that God's doing in your life. Or maybe you've not actually been at home all that much because your work throughout lockdown has actually intensified. And the result of that has been uh, pressure uh, and sometimes discouragement and the revealing of sin. And coupled with not being able to meet with God's people, again, you're asking that question, what is God doing in my life right now? I think it's a perennial question that Christians ask themselves. How can I know that I'm a Christian and how can I know that God is bearing eternal fruit in my life? And if you're asking that question, uh, praise the Lord, uh, because uh, John 15 deals with that. And over the next three Sundays, we're going to be doing a, a mini series in John 15 and 16 um, uh, in order to answer the question, how do I live as a disciple in light of the, uh, the departure of Jesus uh, physically and in light of his return? How do we live in this this in-between bit. And so that's the big thrust of these uh, these sermons. And so we're going to jump into chapter 15 now, which was read earlier in our service. Um, obviously, John's been having a conversation for 14 chapters. Uh, and so, you know, like jumping into any conversation, we can uh, get some highlights uh, and see where we're at. So John's been recording the, the words and the works of Jesus, and he's taken um, specific accounts of the earthly ministry of Jesus in order to portray him uh, and to communicate in a particular way. Uh, and John's been casting his readers' minds back to the Old Testament scriptures in order to show who Jesus is. And so we've already seen in chapter one that Jesus is the author of creation. As we move into chapter two, we've seen that Jesus is the new temple and he's the one who's going to bring about the new creation, which is likened to uh, a fine banquet with the finest wine. In chapter six, we see that Jesus is uh, not only the new Moses, but he himself is the bread from heaven. Uh, and all who feed on him will gain everlasting life. He's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And he's the resurrection and the life, the one to which all creation is heading. Uh, and he is the first fruits of all who will believe. And so there's absolutely no mistake in who Jesus is according to the Gospel of John. And so when we get to chapter 15, John's already been training his readers in how to think about what Jesus says, casting their minds back to the Old Testament scriptures. And so we'll just look at chapter 15 under three headings uh, in light of that. So heading number one, uh, the call is to remain. Jesus Christ alone is the true fruit-bearing vine. So we read verse one. And where Jesus declares, I am the true vine. Uh, and as I mentioned, John is getting us to cast our minds back to the Old Testament. Uh, the Old Testament is absolutely rich with vine and vineyard imagery, too much to cover here, but we'll just look at a couple. Um, psalm 80. Uh, in this psalm, the psalmist declares uh, about God that you transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it and it took root and filled the land. And in Isaiah 5, uh, my loved one had a vineyard uh, on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. So Israel were this vineyard 
that they were called by God, rescued by God out of slavery, given the very words and the oracles of God. And the purpose of this vineyard was fruit. They were to bear fruit to God. They were to live in such a way that the nations around them would marvel, not at at Israel, but at the God to whom they worshipped. But as we look through the Old Testament, time and time again, uh, they failed. And the final failure resulted in exile. But that wasn't the end. The prophets actually in the Psalms spoke of a day when God would replant a vine and protect it with his own strong hand. It talks about this vineyard in in Psalm 80 as it continues. It says, in days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel will bud and blossom and fill the whole earth with fruit. And so it's this Old Testament backdrop, this planting of the vineyard, this exile and this promise of replanting that Jesus makes his comments here. I am the true vine. And here in Jesus's final I am statement, it's not just his declaration of deity, which it is. It's not just Jesus saying I am the true vine in opposition to all other vines, which it is. But it's here, Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment and the culmination of all Israel were meant to be. God's son, God's representative on earth and the one who will bear eternal fruit to the glory of God. I am the true vine, Jesus says. And he's not alone. Regularly, John, the apostle, takes pains to record this about what Jesus says. I am always about my father's business. I am the father of one, he says. And here in verse two, I am the vine and my father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Jesus declaring that he is the true vine is also saying that he is in work with his father. Both are at work in the lives uh, of his people, using the analogy of this vine internally Jesus the vine the life-giving source to the branches and then externally through pruning and shaping the heavenly gardener seeking to bear fruit on the vine and so the father has a has a twofold role here he's cutting the fruitless and he's pruning the fruitful so removing the fruitless Uh, many have read this verse before and they've genuinely ask the question, well, can I lose my salvation? Can I put my trust in Jesus Christ, receive the Holy Spirit, and then be cast off from him? And I would say, brother and sister, no, that's not a reality. And I would say that for two reasons, but there really are more. Firstly is is the very next verse, verse three, which says, you are already clean. I think here Jesus is making a distinction uh, between those who are in him and those who are not. And that, that clean adjective that he uses in the original relates to to a purification Uh, and it echoes chapter 13 which we haven't read but you'll remember that when Jesus washes the feet of the disciples Simon Peter says no um, uh, wash my whole body and Jesus says no those who have had a bath uh, and have washed their whole body no longer need to do that but he was and he was talking about their uh, forgiveness their justification their their cleanliness they are clean and so one who is clean uh, forgiven and restored um Uh, by the words of Jesus, will not be cut off from him. That's reason number one. Reason number two, I think John's gospel elsewhere is emphatic about Jesus and the Father's ability and power and desire to keep and save all those to which they have called. One example, John 6, 
chapter 37, all those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my father's will is that everyone who looks upon the son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I shall raise them up on the last day. So brother or sister, if you've read this verse before and you've heard that you can lose your salvation, then take heart. If Jesus has you, he will keep you. Nobody can snatch you from the Father's hand. Nobody can snatch us from Jesus's hand. It's really likely that this verse is actually in reference to, to Judas, who had seeming like he was connected to the vine, seeming though he would bear fruit, actually proved himself uh, to not be connected as he left the upper room in order to sell his master for 30 pieces of silver. So the Father's twofold role involves uh, cutting off the fruitless, but it also involves pruning the fruitful. Since lockdown, I've actually taken up gardening as a serious hobby um, and uh, grown a number of things, really enjoyed it. I wanted to do it for a while. One of the things that I've been growing um, is cucumbers. And if you've ever grown a cucumber before, you will know that they are vigorous beasts. Um, you come down a couple of days later and you've got tendrils and leaves coming all over the place where you didn't want them. And if you're not careful, uh, they'll go all over the place and they'll take the, the life-giving energy uh, into producing new shoots and leaves rather than sending it to nourish the fruit. And so um, you have to cut, hack, prune, remove in order that uh, the fruit will bear more fruit. And, and, and that's the idea here. Pruning in ancient Israel would happen, maybe even in modern day, happens two times a year, once in the spring, once in the autumn. And it's in this spring pruning where the vines would be cut and shaped in order that they would bear more fruit for the summer that Jesus is in reference to here. And so he uses this agricultural analogy to teach it a spiritual reality. And it's this. Jesus Christ alone is the fruit bearing vine. And all of those, without exception, who are in him will expect to be pruned. And this process won't be painless, but it will be painful. Shaping, cutting, removing. Uh, but the result is so that the, um, his disciples, the branches, will be more fruitful. And so, brothers and sisters, this serves as a, as a warning and an encouragement to us. The warning, then, is if you have something in your life that is stopping you from bearing more fruit that the Lord wants in your life, if it's stopping you from being the man or the woman of God that the Lord would have you to be, if it's occupying a place in your heart that it shouldn't, then we're not to be, ex uh, we're not to be surprised when the Lord in his mercy and his wisdom seeks to remove that, or at least to cut it and to prune it to such a point where it no longer has a hold in our heart to which it once did whether that's a hobby that's become an obsession or, or some kind of thing in your life that is causing great distraction. If these things are getting in the way of you being the man or the woman of God that he wants you to be, and then when to not be, to be surprised when he removes it. So it's a warning to us, but it's, it's also an encouragement because if you're, if this is you right now, if you're going through the Lord's pruning, if you feel like the Lord is, um, is uh, seeking in his loving and gentle wisdom to remove something from your life, um, then this is a great encouragement that he is wanting to bear more fruit in your life. And we all know that, um, according to Hebrews, uh, that no discipline is 
um, is enjoyable. It's actually painful. But the result of all those who have been trained by it is a harvest of righteousness. And this, this is an encouragement that the Lord is wanting to bear fruit in your life and in mine. By necessity, the vine must produce fruit. It produces fruit through the branches, and this comes via pruning. So pruning and fruitfulness can only happen to those who are connected to the vine. And so this is our next point. True disciples must be connected. If for some reason the disciples were slow to understand uh, the spiritual reality in Jesus's agricultural analogy, then what he does is he he sharpens it. Look with me at verses four and five. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, no doubt you notice that repeated word remain. It actually occurs five times in these two verses, ten times overall in this passage. And here Jesus is is inviting the disciples into the inner workings of a deep and an intimate relationship with him. And in verse six, he's actually exposing the utter foolishness of trying to live outside of him, trying to bear fruit apart from him. And so you could look at this, this next section, the next few verses under two headings, the reality of remaining uh, and the result of rejecting. So the reality of remaining, verses four and five, looks like fruit. And um, in my next point, we'll look more specifically at that what that fruit is. Some people point to Galatians 5, the fruit of the spirit, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, that Colin Buchanan song that many of you have uh, have learned that off wrote. But I I don't know whether John the Apostle has that necessarily in mind. Um, But definitely the the fruit of remaining is in one sense belief. Uh, It's knowing that Jesus is the true vine and that apart from him, you can do nothing. It's believing that actually the branches must be grafted into that vine in order to bear fruit. And so in one very real sense, remaining, uh, bearing fruit is faith, the fruit of faith. And so there's a question to us. Do you believe that you can do nothing apart from Jesus Christ? Do you believe uh, that you must have faith in him in order um, to live a pleasing life to God? If so then take encouragement. You are bearing fruit that remains in Jesus. So remaining, being connected looks like fruit. It also looks like having his words in us. Look at seven, uh, verse 7a. If you remain in me and my words remain in you. So a life lived by faith in Jesus means living by his words. And already throughout John's gospel, Jesus has been emphatic um, to those who have his word in them and therefore believe and have life versus those who reject his words and therefore do not have his words in them. And so remaining looks like having Jesus's words in us. And so here's the challenge. Do we strive to have our lives conformed into the word of God? Is our life increasingly transformed by the words of Jesus recorded in the scriptures? Do we know enough of God's word in order to live according to it? How hard is it to make godly decisions if we don't know the word of God? So it's a challenge, but it's also it is a mark of remaining, having his words in us. And that leads to the second half of 
uh, verse 7, which is our third point, it looks like prayers answered. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And so, so remaining in Jesus, having faith in Jesus, obeying, loving and cherishing the words of Jesus means that our uh, hopes, desires, that our thoughts and actions will be conformed into the will and the ways of God. And so that when we pray, our prayers will be uh, in line with the will of God and therefore will be answered. This is not a proof text for those that would love to say, ask whatever you want and you'll get it. Money, power, riches. Um, No, many people try to twist it in that way. But actually, this is a life conformed to the will and the ways of God will pray and ask for the things of God. And therefore, his or her prayers will be answered in line with the will of God. And so, firstly, it's a challenge because it assumes that the disciples will pray. We're to be a praying people. But it also assumes the content of those prayers. And so I found this um, uh, stark. But actually, are our prayers more shaped uh, by the Bible or, or shaped by our own fears and fancies. Uh, let's uh, encourage one another to be uh, brothers and sisters that, whose prayers are shaped uh, through scripture. Uh, and the end result of this is our final point, verse eight, it's the glory, to the glory of God. Remaining um, uh, fruit-bearing disciples bring glory to God the Father. This is the, the final outcome uh, of, a, of a remaining disciple. As we seek to Uh, bear fruit for Jesus, faith in him as we seek to be conformed to his word, uh, live a life of uh, prayerful obedience, Uh, then the the result of that is glory to God. The ministry of Jesus was all about bringing glory to his father and that ministry continues in and through the disciples and therefore through us. And it would be great to stop there um, and move on to the next point, but actually uh, we believe all of scripture is inspired and so we need to talk about the reality of rejecting. And that's at the end of verse four and verse six. Jesus's words are stark. Let's just look at them. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown in the fire and burned. This is the autumn pruning, the second pruning that Jesus is now alluding to where dead and fruitless branches are cut off and thrown into the fire. And at the end of verse four, Jesus is using this uh, ridiculous analogy to say, as no branch bears fruit by itself, neither can you. I mean, just imagine the ridiculousness of this, walking down the street and you see just a bunch of grapes hanging out, trying to bear fruit separate from the vine. Or, Or by the side of the road, there's just this apple branch trying to bear fruit apart from the tree. No, you wouldn't see that because it's ridiculous and impossible. And Jesus likens that to the individual that believes that they can live a life pleasing to God, and that you can be a disciple of his, but not be connected to him. And I just want to want to pause here. Um, I don't know whether you've tuned in for the first time or whether you have been raised uh, in Charlotte Chapel and you've been attending uh, for, for, for a while. Um, but I want to challenge you, if you are not connected to Christ, then you need to listen to these words. No amount of good living whatsoever, no life lived uh, by charity, however honourable it seems, no sacrificial giving, uh, no uh, sacrifice of any kind, no life lived apart from faith in Jesus will be pleasing to God and will bear fruit to his glory. 
Uh, and actually, the reality is all lives that are lived apart from faith in Jesus, apart from being connected to him, are like the branch that is removed, withered, thrown away and burned. The reality is when we face God, we're going to face him uh, either in our own sins or dressed in the righteousness of Jesus. Jesus is exclusive. He says that no man comes to the Father except by me because the standard is perfection. Nobody meets it apart from Jesus and therefore we need to be connected to Jesus. He's exclusive. But the Bible is also emphatic that he's inclusive. Even John's Gospel, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever, whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And so if you're not connected to Christ, Repent of your sins, trust in him and be brought into a living relationship with him that you might bear fruit for him to the glory of God. The result, if you do not, is stark. It's an eternity in hell. And I would implore you, please, please consider that. It's sobering and it's true, but it's not the main thrust of this passage in total, actually, this passage is an encouraging one about the father's plan through his son, by his disciples to the world. And that's that's our final point. It's a challenge to remain. Loving, sacrificial obedience results in joyful mission. Jesus continues to expound this vine image that he's just given his disciples. And he now teaches them about what abiding will look like to one another and as they go out into the world. Read from verse nine. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you this, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So here Jesus is now commissioning the disciples and he uses his own pattern of obedience to the Father. He actually connects verses 9 and 10. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Um, if you keep my commandments, you'll remain in my love. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. So why has the Father loved Jesus? Well, it's not least because Jesus is the eternal Son who shared glory with him before the foundation of the world. That's true. But in this passage, Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. I have kept the Father's commandments. Jesus connects this elsewhere in John as well. He says, I've not come down to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus's mission on earth was to obey the will of the Father, to fulfill his commandments, to fulfill the whole law of God. And actually in this fulfillment of the law of God, in his obedience, he found deep, lasting and profound joy. Now, just think about that for a second. Our culture tells us that obedience uh, to laws uh, is restricting, uh, it's life sapping. And in fact, in some circles, it's dangerous. It's a dangerous narrative. Authority and obedience are bad. Not according to Jesus. Look at verse 11. These things I have spoken to you. What are these things? Obedience to God's commands. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. The result, it's not drudgery, brothers and sisters. It's not cold, dead, restricting obedience. It's joy. Because there's only true freedom and true joy 
in relationship with the triune God. Where is joy found? True joy in this entire universe. It's between the Father, Son and Spirit. And we enter into that relationship by faith in Jesus. We're grafted in, connected to the vine. Uh, but the communion of that relationship, we're entered by union through faith, but that communion of that relationship comes through obedience, obedience to the laws of God, to the commands of God through faith in Jesus. It's friends, being friends with God that produces the joy in his people. And this is what Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. So according to Jesus, obedience leads to joy. And if you think that's countercultural, look at the next words. Verse 13, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down his life for one's friends. This is loving sacrifice. So according to Jesus, sacrifice is love. Now that's countercultural. Not only is it love, but actually, according to Jesus, there's none greater than this. Jesus is echoing the, the command from verse chapter 13, that this is how they will know you're my disciples, that you love one another. And this love, this is what Jesus' great command, but he's not dismissing the other commands of God. But this one in particular is how the disciples are to be known in the world, that they love one another. Now, specifically, Jesus, I think, is echoing his own self-sacrifice. Greater love has no one than this than one who lays down his life for his friends. He's talking about his own death that is due to come, his own glory as he offers up his life as, a, as an atonement for sin in order to be resurrected. But also, this is a pattern for the disciples. They're to love one another sacrificially, costly. And as we see from the New Testament, they do. But this is a pattern for all that would seek to follow Jesus as well. And that includes us. I mean, talk about a high bar. I don't know how you think that we fare in this area uh, as a church at Charlotte Chapel. I mean, from personal experience, I have experienced great sacrificial love. And yet I feel that this uh, verse would still challenge us uh, to greater depths and greater degrees of love. Love that really costs us, sacrificial love, not just to, to us here in our fellowship, but to, to Christians in our nation uh, and across the world. And so you might want to pray to the Lord, ask him, what would it look like for me to, to love in light of this text? What would it lo look like for me to love sacrificially, to, for it to cost me, in order that the world might know the one to whom uh, I belong? Because that's the result. That's the end result in this passage. It's a, it's a one of eternal value. It's one of lasting fruit. You see, uh, Jesus goes on to say uh, in this passage, uh, the result of this. And I think this is the, the primary fruit that the Lord Jesus is talking about. So fruit in this passage does mean faith in Jesus. It does mean general godly living. But I think there's a specificity as well. Look with me at verse 16. And this is as I close. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. That word appointed in the, uh, the verb in the original actually relates to being commissioned to a specific ministry. In fact, in the, in the authorised version, the King James, it, it didn't use the word appointed. It used the word ordained. 
coupled with uh, the the last part of verse 16, fruit that will last, well, in the ESV, it uses that same word that it's used throughout this passage, fruit that will abide. And so if abiding fruit looks like faith in Jesus, looks like the words being in that fruit, if it looks like um, conformity to Jesus, then it can only mean that this fruit that the disciples have been appointed to bear is more disciples. It's a missionary call, and that's not surprising within the Gospel of John the Evangelist. And so the great aim of Jesus' disciples in their joyful obedience, in their sacrificial love, is that they might bear eternal and lasting fruit, that the world might see that this is a picture of God's people, sacrificially loving, joyfully obedient, praising and giving glory to God. And so as followers of Jesus, as uh, those that walk in the pattern of the disciples, we're to live lives of loving obedience and of sacrificial love to one another that, that is full of joy. And it's this that will lead um, to salvation in others. And so back to the question from the beginning, how can I know that I am a Christian? How can I know that I am bearing fruit uh, to the glory of God? Well, if you can say that you recognise you can do no good thing apart from Jesus Christ, if you can say that you desire to obey him increasingly and that you're longing to love your brothers and sisters in your local body and across this world more and more, imperfect as you are, uh, then take heart because these things are impossible apart from being rooted in Christ. And so the call for us then is to continue in his love, to continue in obedience that leads to joy uh, in order that we might um, spread the message and the goodness of Jesus Christ across this world. Uh, maybe this week you want to start by uh, reading uh, some of the Lord's words in order to, to warm your heart uh, and to believe his promises. I've started reading Proverbs uh, over the past few weeks and it's been a real blessing taking a chapter at a time and just seeking to to ask the Lord for wisdom that I might live for him, that my life might be conformed to him. Maybe you might want to start doing that. We want to be men and women that um, uh, obey out of joy, uh, that, that love sacrificially and that therefore the world looks at and sees the glory of Jesus. We want to be uh, uh, connected to the true fruit-bearing vine that Israel should have been, that the world might look upon and not marvel at us, but marvel at the God to whom we worship. Let's pray. Majestic Father in heaven, thank you uh, for your mercy and your grace towards us, a people that are so undeserving. Uh, thank you for the Lord Jesus and for his wonderful, uh, sacrificial and obedient life to the point of death. I thank you that through his resurrection and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, uh, we, your people, through faith, have been connected to him, the life-giving source, and that your plan now is to prune us and to shape us that we might bear fruit to you. And so, Lord, we pray that as a body, we would be those that um, are joyfully obedient, that love sacrificially, and that you might uh, be pleased to use our sacrifice and our love and our obedience to bring about more disciples for Jesus. Uh, and that we might have lasting joy in him. And we pray all this for the glory of our Lord and King. Amen.